You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Dale C. Allison, Jr. is the Richard J. Dearborn Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. He earned his MA and PhD from Duke University. His academic research and publications include The Historical Jesus, The Gospel of Matthew, Second Temple Judaism, and The History of the Interpretation and Application of Biblical Texts. His book, Constructing Jesus, was selected as Best Book Relating to the New Testament, for 2009-2010 by the Biblical Archaeology Society. His most recent books are The Resurrection of Jesus, Apologetics, Polemic History, and Encountering Mystery, Religious Experience in a Secular Age. Dale came to my attention through friend of the podcast, Andrew Hironich, who has been one of Dale's students at Princeton Theological Seminary, and I am grateful that Dale endorsed Andrew's new book, Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Apocatastasis, writing, Heartfelt yet rational, critical yet fair-minded, Andrew Hironish's exegetical and theological contribution is a splendid, reliable, up-to-date guide through the maze of knotty issues that attend discussion of the crucial, indeed all-important, issue of universalism. So, Dale, our thanks to you for your scholarly guidance and encouragement for Andrew and all of your students. And I'm so pleased to have you on to discuss your own eschatologically themed book, which came out in 2016 with its arresting title, Night Comes, Death, Imagination, and the Last Things. Welcome, Dale Allison, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you very much, David. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, I'd like to start with something from my own experience, which I think has some resonance with yours. I attended okay. a mainline uh, Protestant uh, progressive uh, seminary. We were taught to think critically and to ask good questions. And I'm grateful for all that I learned in that process. But I did notice that in that setting, what seemed to me to be a surprising disinterest in the afterlife, it felt to me that a real but unexpressed attitude by and large was that the afterlife was what fundamentalists focused on. While we were progressives and we were focused on this life, heaven and hell in the here and now. And that all came back to me when I read the part in your book where you said of your seminary experience, quote, to my dismay, I learned that some modern theologians had already capitulated. That is, for them, the afterlife and the two traditional means of getting there, the soul and the resurrection belong to the past. And they were trying to refashion Christianity without them. Gordon Kaufman clearly affirmed that this life is all we have. Tillich said the same thing, albeit less clearly. And I was wondering if you could just say some more about this. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll just begin by saying that death has been an existential concern to me going back to when I was a teenager. It was something that I thought a lot about, and it was something that I worried about a lot. And of course, as I've gone on through life, I've realized that death is an important subject and that people worry about it and that people are anxious about it. It is really important because we're all going to die. 
And it strikes me as odd for theologians who are supposed to be talking about God and about ultimate concern and things that matter for them, or at least some of them, never to touch this issue. It's as though they're missing um, a really important part uh, of human uh, experience. Also, for me, the question of something beyond this world is tied up with the problem of of evil. Maybe we'll come back to this, but I personally think if this world is all there is, uh, I might as well be an atheist. I I don't see God winning in this world. Maybe occasionally God wins a battle, but um, I, I think that if there is ultimately any real theodicy, or any solution or resolution of the problem of evil. It's going to have to involve something more than this world and this life and and what we can see now. And the the third thing I'll say about this, which has to do with the theologians, is that if you know anything about Christian history or the history of Christian theology, you will know that heaven and hell and the afterlife and resurrection – judgment, reward, and so on, are really, really important issues. They're crucial. They're they're maybe not the center, but they are always addressed and they're always important. And then to find a new generation of theologians for whom those old questions don't matter at all, it made me sometimes think, is this really my religion that these people are talking about? Because by jettisoning this, it seemed to me that they jettisoned so much that's really important in the tradition. As a Christian, all you have to think of is the central affirmation of Christianity and how it all started, which is this guy rose from the dead. Well, that surpasses this worldly possibilities. It's about some sort of transcendent uh, existence. And uh, I actually didn't I found at some point I didn't enjoy reading theologians who gave no uh, thought to this issue and thought that they could conduct business with, with, without eschatological matters. Well, as I read your story in the book, there was a spiritual experience you had as a teenager where the stars came down, so to speak, and also the visit you had from a friend who had died yet appeared to you after her death. Now, these are not the kinds of stories academics usually share Why did you share them, and what do they mean? Well, so first of all, um, what I usually tell people is that I don't have any more promotion committees in my future, and (laughs) I've already made my reputation in my field, and I can see retirement on the line. So, you know, up ahead. So I don't care what people think about me anymore. So that's really true. Um, I, I don't care if they disagree or think that I've gone around the bend or somehow lost my um, critical thought. I, I haven't. Um, so I don't care about other people. And by the way, young scholars do have to care. If you have you know, a tenure committee in your future, and if you want to be promoted and, and so on, if you want to make some progress in the field and have people pay attention to your work, there are things you should do and shouldn't do. And traditionally, uh, the things that I have done now in two or three of my books are things that you shouldn't do if you want want to get ahead. But I don't have to get ahead anymore. You don't want uh, to be you, too es- you don't want to be too esoteric too early. <laughs> well, uh, but to see this stuff shouldn't be esoteric, and, and maybe that goes to the the next point to make. 
I just think I'm being honest. That's it. I'm not doing anything other than being honest. And I don't like a world in which we have to self-censor in which things that are really important to us and things that have actually, in my case, driven my research, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or explain ultimately why I'm in this field in the first place. I mean, I have a, a sort of conversion experience or a mystical point of departure for all of this. That's what got me interested in God. That's what got me interested in the Bible. Um, experiences lie underneath and behind uh, all of this stuff. But as I, as I just said, sometimes they actually inform my research. So I, I wrote a book recently on the resurrection of Jesus. And in doing so, you have to go through a large literature on visions and visionary experiences, trying to figure out what the heck is going on in the New Testament and what um, other people have said about visions and so on. Um, as you indicated, I've had a, an experience where I believe that somebody who was dead appeared to me. I believe on another occasion she told me to do something. Uh, after my father died, this was in the 1990s, I was dumbfounded by how many people came up afterwards and told me they had run into my dad, Clifford, or heard him speak to them or, or seen him. It was really amazing. And there's no way that I can conduct my work as a New Testament scholar and not have these things in my background, not have them making me wonder about analogies or trying to figure out what visions really are. Is everybody just hallucinating? Is there something more? So um, I, these things, just as a matter of fact, are important. And they're not just important to me personally. They're important to me as, as, as a scholar. And I'd also say, finally, that I do think some experiences uh, suggest something more than what we usually see. Maybe you could call them signals of transcendent. I'm kind of shy. I don't want to say that certain experiences prove this or prove that. But I think that some experiences that we have are suggestive of, of something more than what we uh, usually uh, envisage or that we envisage within the academy where, mm-hmm. where I have spent my career doing, doing my work. One of the things you said was that the Christian faith, the Christian religion is centered around this um, belief that one rose from the dead. And so resurrection and what, what what does that mean and how do we think about it? And usually, I guess sometimes when people think about resurrection, the, we tend to sort of atomize it. And, and, and ultimately, we, we wonder, well, does this mean that I will come back from the dead somehow? Uh-huh. And we, we yeah. get to thinking about kind of our own personal destiny so that we can kind of think of resurrection in that way. And I, and I like what you wrote. Uh, in your book, you said, even Jesus in the old icons of his resurrection isn't alone. As he departs from Hades and rises from the dead, he hauls others He hauls others up with him, including Adam and Eve, representatives of fallen and redeemed humanity. His defeat of death is their defeat of death. His victory is their victory. So resurrection is about human collectivity. It puts everyone in the same story by giving us all the same ending. In this In this, resurrection differs from and is superior to that other chief symbol of the afterlife immortality. Resurrection isn't about you or about me, but about us and about a kingdom. When in the revelation of John, the saints rise from the dead, they enter the new Jerusalem with its 12 open gates. That means they enter a city, which by definition shelters a large collection of people. 
So I was wondering if you could say some more about resurrection and collectivity. Well, I do think there is a, a tendency among uh, many Christians I know when they think of the afterlife to think of, I am going to heaven, where the question is, am I going to heaven or I am go- or am I going to hell? And the chief word in both of those sentences is I. Am I mm-hmm. going to heaven or am I going to hell? Now, occasionally it gets a bit enlarged. People will say, well, I'm going to be with my family, right? I'm going to be with my friends. It gets enlarged a little bit. But I think this is about God, and I think God is large, and I think God is all-encompassing. And I also think theologically that I'm not isolated. I think that I am profoundly connected to my neighbor and profoundly connected to actually all human beings who ever lived and maybe in some way uh, related to to everything that's alive. And the notion that my story, therefore, could be complete or even thought of accurately apart from everybody else's story doesn't seem to... uh, to ring true. Uh, I sometimes think of Romans 8, where Paul is thinking of the future, and then he says, all creation groans. That's a that's a big picture, right? That's mm-hmm. even bigger than the, the artwork that I like. You know, we have so many pictures of the resurrection, especially uh, in, in Renaissance art and then post-Renaissance art, where you see all these people rising from the dead. I like that because Everything, everybody is experiencing the same thing, and somehow we're all we're all tied together. There are there are crowds to people there. Now I don't meta, I don't know metaphysically um, how I'm related or ontologically related to other people. Maybe on some weird subtle level we're somehow all connected. But I do know I'm supposed to love my enemy, and I think that is in part because my enemy is somehow me. That is, we are not truly separate. We are um, we are bound up in this together. So um, that's one reason I like resurrection so much. And sometimes the, the, the immortality of the soul or talking about heaven and hell can just be I, 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 I. And that can't be what redemption is about. That can't be what God is about. That can't be what our future is about. Whatever it is, it has to be bigger than we are now. Mm-hmm. One of the main themes of your book is how judgment is connected with death. You note that Cyril of Jerusalem taught that we will on the last day be judged in the light of our own conscience and according to Basil the Great, God will illumine our hearts so that our memories will pass before us and our own sins will testify against us. And you go on to give some examples of how something like this happens in the life review of near-death experiencers. I was wondering if you could sort of talk about the relationship between death and judgment and life review. Well, um, for me, this started with uh, Augustine. And I was reading a passage in Augustine where he was talking about what the last judgment could be like uh, or what judgment after death could be like. And he, he then goes on and he says, well, it's going to be like your whole life flashes in front of you in an instant. And when he was writing about this, I thought, this sounds exactly like what happens to people when they have near-death experiences. And it turns out that uh, even before we have all this literature on near-death experiences, people did know about uh, this phenomenon. Uh, I, I first ran across this reading a book 
published by a German in the 1880s or 1890s. And he was a mountain climber who fell off a mountain. And on the way down, he, he wasn't panicked. He felt some sort of peace and resignation. And at the same time, his whole life passed before his eyes. And he thought, you know what? I wonder if this happens to other people. So he interviewed a bunch of people who had also fallen off mountains. And they said, yeah. Uh, and so I think this might be the first systematic attempt for someone to say, you know, this is a real experience and, and that it happens. And then it pops up again after Raymond Moody and all the other people uh, in, in the latter part of the 20th century start writing about near-death experiences. So what I decided was that uh, Augustine was actually not just making something up. He'd actually heard somebody uh, with this experience or somehow knew about this experience. You know, even apart from uh, near-death experiences, we all know this phrase, your life flashed in front of your eyes. The weird thing is we know it because it happens. Now, I have no explanation for it. It makes no sense. If you read the accounts, it's truly bizarre. People will say time stopped and I actually saw every event in my life. That makes no sense. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. But uh, I then discovered that some later theologians, 18th and 19th century, played with this idea also. That is, they say, well, you know, sometimes people have this experience and maybe this is what the last judgment is like. And so I thought, well, other people have done this. Uh, I think we know a lot more about um, this phenomenon now than, than people did then. So Let's think about these two things together. So that's what I do at one point uh, in the book. And I guess I should add that this isn't the place to go into it. But for me, it's really important to realize that doctrines aren't simply things that people make up while sitting around the campfire. They're not just saying, well, let's just make something up. How about this? Um Doctrines often come from people reflecting on things that have happened to them. Doctrine often grows out of people trying to make sense of of experience, right? And uh, for me, that's really crucial. And seeing things has changed the way I think about about religion, not just Christianity, but actually um, actually all religions and and their doctrines. And you know, where are they coming from? What, mm-hmm. they're not just spinning tails out of nothing in, in my judgment, but that's, that's a bigger subject that gets us a little off of what you want to do today. Well, with regard to the legal lens through which we often see judgment, you write our Western theological tradition with its love of jurisprudence has gone astray when it's extended the courtroom metaphor too far and turned divine judgment into a legal and impersonal affair as though God were as blind and impartial as Lady Justice with her scales. And then you follow up with, the divine court on a Christian view must be radically different, for the judge isn't the detached enforcer of some inflexible law. The the judge is rather the author of the parable of the prodigal son, and his shepherd and savior, as advocate and physician, he is wildly biased in favor of all the defendants. There's something theologically right about the old paintings of the last judgment in which Michael the archangel furtively presses the scales of justice in order to obtain a favorable outcome. And I was wondering if you could say more about that. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe two things in response to that. The first thing before I, I, I 
get to the direct answer is I wish to emphasize that I I take moral imperatives really seriously. I think human beings are responsible. We need to live as responsible creatures. Uh, I'd like to think the Sermon on the Mount is my conscience. Um, I, I read, uh, recited repeatedly the Ten Commandments to my children when the, they were growing up. Uh, I don't think the Boy Scout law is trite or stupid. I think people really should work their tails off to be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, and, and so on. So I do think we have these imperatives upon us and that we have to take them seriously. And in some way, they make us responsible because we have to respond to them. On the other hand, and at the end of the day, I think you have to say that grace wins. And I like a, a line from the book of James, which says that mercy triumphs over judgment or justice. It's chrysios in the Greek. So it's, you know, I, either way, mercy triumphs over judgment over justice. So if you have these two things and they contradict, which one wins? Well, this text says clearly mercy does. And uh, this seems to me to be in part what Paul is about. Paul um, doesn't get justice. He doesn't get what he get, deserves. He rather gets remade by an outside force. That's how he interprets and perceives what has happened to him. He didn't do it. And he will then use the language of, of, of grace James uses the, the language of mercy. So I take this really seriously. I don't know how I put this all together, right? I'm not an oracle. I haven't figured everything out. We are profoundly responsible. On the other hand, grace, mercy, they triumph everything, uh, every, everything else. I remember years ago uh, reading about the serial killer Ted Bundy. And a Protestant pastor had gone to visit him uh, I guess before he was executed. Um, and this pastor came out of uh, some meetings with him and said, praise the Lord, Ted Bundy is saved. He's going to heaven. And I remember thinking, shoot, that's terrible. This guy is a monster. He really should pay for his sins in some, in some really hard way. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a purgatory or something like that, right? That, just going straight to heaven as this pastor uh, pronounced seemed odd to me, and it's still still odd to me. At the end of the day, however, I think I do like this Christian idea that uh, God is so merciful that you know just repentance on your deathbed is is enough. That's a uh, a way of saying that mercy triumphs over justice or, or, or judgment. So uh, I'm not coherent here because I've seen a lot of cheap Protestant grace and I really hate it. But at the end of the day, um, I have to, to go with James. <laughs> well, when it comes to imagining the eschatological future, you write, the second thing required for useful eschatological fictions is that they be theologically sound. This means they must derive from and promote foundational convictions about God. In everyday life, we never imagine from scratch. We can only invent with the materials already at hand. 
It's the same with eschatology. We extend into the future what we believe about God in the past and the present. More precisely, we project our convictions about God's goodness, truth, and beauty onto the unknown. When we do this, we aren't guilty of untrammeled speculation, and our metaphors aren't mere metaphors. They're rather imaginative attempts by finite creatures to stammer about an ineffable God and an indistinct future, or rather about both of them at the same time, since the human telos is God. And then you add to this, our idealism, like that of Jesus, should be theocentric and so grounded in the conviction that ultimately all will be well, and that those of us still inspired by the biblical prophets may be sustained by hope in the ultimate transcendent triumph of God. And so could you say more about that? (laughs) Oh, my. Well, let me start out by saying that uh, for better or worse, uh, I read Pseudo Dionysius many years ago, and I ended up at least philosophically being a sort of apophatic uh, thinker. So God is beyond all thought. God is beyond conceptualization. I don't understand God metaphysically. I don't understand uh, God ontologically. In some weird way, uh, this God I love is, is a blank, right? Is a blank and uh, often best approached through negation. God is not this. God is, is, is not like uh, that. God is sort of like that, but, you know, not really ultimately. But if you're talking about hope and eschatology, you can't just have a blank. And the future is God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the hope. That's the goal. So you can't just be satisfied with, we will see a blank. We will see an unknown. I have no idea what I'm talking about. So what we have to do is we have to do what I think Jesus did. So you have to use the mundane to talk about the transcendent. You have to use the present to talk about the future. You have to, to use the known to talk about the, the unknown. And isn't this what we do or what Jesus does in, in the parables? Uh, the kingdom is like a treasure. Well, we know what a treasure is, right? The kingdom is like this. It's like that. But it's not really literally this or that. So that's what I was getting uh, getting to. I think we can construct metaphors and similes that are theologically sound, and that means they are in in, in effect stories. But we know that they are they are not literally true. Um, when I think about this, one of the things I th- I think about. Um, has to do with near-death experiences, and this podcast isn't about that, but uh, since we already brought up uh, the life review, I can also bring up the fact that many of these people report, this is really interesting, that in their experience, there's a point at which they make a decision whether to to return or to go on, that is to die or, or, or to live. Now, what's really interesting, if you study these testimonies, they will talk about, I was at a door, or I was at a gate, or I was at a fence, or I was at a river, or I was at a wall. And they don't say, well, it was kind of like I was at a fence or a wall or a door. They just say it. 
And I think that's how they are remembering it, or maybe that's even how they perceived it. But literally, it can't be the case because they're all using different metaphors, but they're clearly using different metaphors to talk about the same sort of experience. And I think that's the kind of thing maybe that we can do with with eschatology. There must be many ways of illustrating the fact that God will win, for example. There just must be many ways of doing that, many stories and and, and, and so on. So uh, we can't talk about uh, these things the same way we can talk about material objects. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about them in an informed uh, man- and intelligent manner. Well, as, as you might imagine, given my own convictions, when I was, when I was reading that part of your book, it certainly uh, it, it jumped out to me that con- the conviction that ultimately all will be well and that rang my Julian of Norwich. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. And then um, talking about the ultimate transcendent triumph of God, uh, that, that kind of makes me think about apocatastasis, the ultimate uh-huh. restoration. And yeah. then so you, we go on to chapter. So I get on to chapter five of your book and it's entitled Hell and Sympathy, which I thought was an interesting title. And then you give some quotes at the beginning of that chapter. The first quote is, the mysteries of God's love cannot be measured by the penal code, penal code, Sergius Bulgakov. And then death, misery, and hell have an end because grace is eternal. Jürgen Moltmann. Well, of course, now, (laughs) okay, well, I know that Sergius Bulgakov and Jürgen Moltmann are are two uh, very, very, very well-known uh, 20th century, well, Bulgakov, he was earlier. First part, he's the first part of the 20th century. Yeah, but they are both associated with a very strong, um, um, I guess, organ where the ultimate restoration of all things becomes uh-huh. very, very central to their whole theological enterprise. So mm-hmm. for you to quote them, um, <laughs> as I'm reading that, of course, you know, would send me in a certain, <laughs> in a certain direction. So why did you, uh, what, what, why, why quote Bulgakov and Moltmann? Okay. Well, so first of all, uh, Bulgakov is, uh, to me, interesting for, for many reasons, not just his universalism. I am attracted to him because of that, but he was a very creative and even daring thinker, got himself into to trouble, um, he was exiled uh, from Russia by the communists, end up, ended up in Paris, and uh, there were heresy trials about him and, and so on. But he's a really interesting thinker. Um, it, it's sometimes hard to, to read him, but I like to quote him just so that people will go read him. You know, that's one of the things you're doing when you put a quotation at yeah. the, the front of a chapter. You're saying, I, I think this person is, is important. Now, what I like about Moltmann is that he is a famous Protestant theologian, and he's a mainline theologian. But and he can he can speak in the theological jargon, and you know sometimes he can get very abstract. But I like him because he will talk in a very plain, straightforward fashion about questions that interest me. He will say, "Is there an afterlife?" and then he'll answer it. Or he'll ask, should we believe in hell? And then he will answer it. He'll even address questions like, do our pets go to heaven? And he'll take it as a serious question and talk about it. And he'll do it in just plain, straightforward language. So 
the reason, one of the reasons I like Moldman is because he's different than the theologians you talked about at the beginning, uh, Kaufman and Tillich. Tillich often I find very obscure and I keep reading between the lines and wondering if I'm reading the right thing. Uh, but Moldman, uh, in a lot of his writings, you don't have any question. He's just straightforward and on an, I, I find it refreshing. Well, I, I enjoyed Moltmann because uh, while I enjoy Bart, it seemed to me that Moltmann, where, where Bart slowed down and and sort of put on the brakes, Moltmann just strode right past him and yeah. said, "Why, why put on the brakes now? Why not? <laughs> why not just go confidently and uh, to the conclusions about where this is all really headed?" Yeah, and you know, Bart in general doesn't say a whole lot about the world to come. He's very shy about it, and uh, there are even passages I, I don't understand. And, I'm, I, and and I've talked to Bardian scholars, and they haven't clarified them to me. There are passages. Well, hey, you're where, at. Well, let me just say you're at it, Princeton Theological <laughs> Seminary. Yeah. You, you might be able to find a Bart scholar around. Well, there. <laughs> so they're not as common as they used to be. Um, uh, it's a dying breed, but I have known some of them. Uh, and there are passages where it sounds like our immortality is being remembered by God. And I don't really know what to make of these passages. Anyway, I don't have that problem with Moltmann. When I read a paragraph by Moltmann, I know what it means. I don't have to go ask an expert to interpret it. So I appreciate that about him. Yeah. Well, so... Although chapter five is entitled Hell and Sympathy, I think one of the things you're getting at there is that there's actually very little sympathy in what became understood, at least, as the traditional view of hell as eternal conscious torment. And so what do you find troubling about hell as eternal conscious torment? So here I'm up front and there is a theological justification, but the, the straightforward answer is twofold. One, I am a modern person who thinks that torture is repugnant. I don't believe in torture. I think it's wrong. And that's it, period. I also am a, am a modern person in that I think sh punishment should be whenever possible. And maybe that means always. Punishment should be remedial. Punishment should not be for its own sake. And if I look at the traditional hell, it is a torture chamber and it is not remedial. And since I find torture repugnant and since I think punishment without uh, being remedial is unethical, I don't know how to project those things onto God. I don't know how to say, well, God does this thing that I find uh, ethically uh, repugnant. God does this thing, which I think is terrible. Um, I, I'm just a modern person. Um, so the, the short and I guess adequate answer is I can't imagine God doing what I find morally uh, repugnant. And that's it. I can't believe what I can't believe. Well, you, you, can't, you can't make me believe what I don't believe. Well, you're, you, you are talking about some modern sensibilities here, uh, but also in your book, um, you do talk about how it's beginning in the 1800s that there was quite a debate that was already developing over this topic. So it's not just 
the debate about hell is not just something about modern people with heightened consciences against torture and the like. This was also beginning to really get rolling back in the 1800s. So, yeah, let me, uh, boy, this is a large topic. So the first thing I'd say is that there are always Christian voices that are uneasy with the traditional hell. So Augustine already, when he trots out his eternal torture chamber, uh, lists a bunch of options that other Christians hold. That is, he knows he's his view is not the only one. I can't remember what it is now, but at one point, there's something like eight or nine different options on the table. And if you read Christian literature, you'll also find lots of places where it said that the, the damned in hell, well, they must get Sundays off or they must get the great feasts off. Things like this. People are trying to ameliorate it or uh, there are texts in which you can you know, pray your relatives out of hell and, and so on. Or Mary can pray someone out or Peter can and so on. So there, there's always, in my judgment, um, some people within the church who think this is too harsh and they they don't uh, like it. But things really get started, I think, in the 1700s. And again, the big debates, let's say, in the Church of England are in the 19th century. But there are lots of really interesting discussions be before then. And I think this all has to do with European culture during the Enlightenment. And I don't I don't understand this. I'm not an historian of the Enlightenment, and I can get in trouble here. But I think it's fair to say this. Um, you know, today people often talk about the other, the other in quotes, or they'll capitalize other. So I, I, I'll use that. In the 17th century in Europe, you can see a tendency for people to begin to think differently about the other. For example, um, the serious objections to the slave trade start then. There are people who are looking and saying, who aren't slaves and looking at this and saying, this is terrible, right? This is also the time when modern prison form begins, reform gets to be born. And people say, you know what? Maybe we should treat prisoners a, a little better. And maybe we should actually try to rehabilitate them rather than just throw them off into cages and throw food at them once in a while. This is also the time, interestingly enough, where um, you begin to get people interested in animal cruelty. There, actually, you could also argue that the women, the seeds of the women movement, which women's movement, which took off in the 19th century, uh, is already there in the 18th century. So what's happening? Somehow, and I don't understand it, but there's a large, enlarged empathy, enlarged sympathy, and people are looking around at others who are not like them. These are the, you know, the European elites, or a lot of them, and they're saying, "Oh, uh, they're more and more thinking things like there, but, but you know, but for the grace of God, go I, right?" And uh, they're no longer blaming people for being different than they are. All right. Now, whatever the cause of that is, I don't know. It's not simply a Christian development. It does have something to do with the Enlightenment and uh, the fallout from the wars of religion and, and, and so on. But uh, this is the same sort of sentiment or feel, feeling that then moves into the 19th century when you get the debates about uh, 
hell that are especially uh, fierce in the, the, the Anglican church. But again, go back to the issue of torture. What's happened is that people have decided torture is wrong. It's immoral. It's unethical. We quit burning people at some point. Calvin could burn somebody. Michael Cervantes. Who was evil. But two centuries later, Christians and others are looking around saying, that's evil. We're not going to do that anymore. At some point, they get rid of thumb screws. At, at some point, um, they get rid of all these instruments of torture. And when they do that, well, that's what hell was. Hell was um, an unredeemed torture chamber. If torture becomes immoral, then the traditional hell is not going to be intuitively correct. It's going to be counterintuitive. And I think that these sorts of big changes in, in the larger world um, are, are, are pushing things. And by the way, again, I think that you, you don't want to just sit back and say, okay, well, that's, uh, you know, you're just capitulating to modernity. So a fundamentalist might listen to us and say, you're just capitulating to, to modernity. But the truth is that in our tradition, we do have ideas that don't get developed rightly or fully. Uh, they're not unfolded until way down the line. So everybody agrees, everybody agrees that slavery is wrong. It's wrong. It is immoral. But it took the churches a long time to say that. If you look at the first thousand years of church history, I don't know anybody except Gregory of Nyssa who actually comes out and says, this is just wrong. Nobody should have slaves. Yes, it's, that's, a, that's yeah. a great thing about Gregory of Nyssa. Yeah, it is. But, but it's also a terrible thing about everybody else <laughs> because they didn't say it and they didn't see it. And um, so we now look back and we can't imagine what was wrong with all these people, right? Okay, so I look back at them, and it's the same thing with hell as a torture chamber. I look back at them and say, well, they didn't get it right about slavery, and they didn't get, they didn't get punishment right either. This is not what punishment is about. It's not a torture chamber uh, that goes on forever and ever. Mm -hmm. uh, we know better than that. We've learned better. And, uh, you know, I, I think you can justify a lot of our changes theologically. You can go back and say, well, we've always supposed, we, we're supposed to love our neighbor. Haven't we known that from the beginning? Right? Heck, we're even supposed to love our enemies. That means everybody, doesn't it? Uh, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, right? Male or female. Maybe we have those ideas and we never uh, unfolded them properly. Uh at least that's how that's how I think about this. And yeah, you can similar kind of thing about anti-Semitism. There was one yes. point at which the Bible was seen to be, you know, give a lot of justification for, and it was used mm -hmm. uh, as a sort of a clear foundation for a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric and violence and all kinds of things. And then, and and then now, you know, if anybody does that uses the Bible for to promote anti-Semitism, everybody's well, at least should be. Most everybody now is rightly horrified by that. Yes, that's correct. You're right. That's exactly the same sort of thing. So we look at our tradition and we say, um, we love our tradition. And then we say, it's been really bad with regard to this, that, and the other thing. And I think it's been really bad with regard to torture and, and prison and ideas about punishment. 
Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you know, I, I went to I'm uh, my background's Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I went to um, um, you know mainline. Uh, you might call it probably pe- people would think it probably pr- pr- more progressive kind of seminary yeah. and think, oh well, you know, you you mainliners, you you, you know, you're the ones that you you've always you're always deconstruct stuff. You know, you're yeah. Uh, you're you're just afraid about these hard truths about God, and you know that's what the, that's what evangelicals are for. And if there's one thing that you can know about an evangelical, is that evangelicals will always be ready to stand behind the hell doctrine and not shy away from it. And uh-huh. and what I say to them is, ironically, kind of what really got the modern um, rethinking of hell going was prominent top tier evangelicals objecting to it. I mean, mainline Protestants had been inject, objecting to it for a long time, the eternal conscious tor- torment doctrine. Um, but then when it was people like John Wenham and John Stott that came out and started questioning this eternal conscious torment doctrine, well, that kind of opened the floodgates for people to, to then start thinking about other options. Yeah, so the, the only thing to say about um, those two figures is that they are— like me. Earlier, I said, I'm a modern person by which now, in many ways, I'm not modern. But I'm a modern person in that I don't believe in torture, right? And I think punishment should be remedial. And they are also, uh, these two evangelical figures, they are a product of our Western history. And this is a history which now says we shouldn't do this, and we shouldn't do that. And then to say, but God does them, to say they're wrong and then to say, but God does them, just does not compute. It makes no sense. Uh, God embodies uh, the highest morality, right? That's that's our notion. God is good. God is goodness. And um, God cannot be doing things that you believe are evil. So um, they may be a little more evangelical or conservative than I am, but they're also the product of the same history that I that I am, and they can't help it. And so it's going to influence how they, they read the texts and how they interpret them. I just think, think that's funny that, that, that these are both men that were sort of, um, you know, kind of at the, at maybe the end point of kind of their careers. And finally Uh they just needed to sort of speak out about this. Uh But what that did, uh, I talked to people who say, um, you know, it was when, uh, a lot of people that contact me are people or evangelicals who are deconstructing from an eternal conscious torment uh-huh. viewpoint. And they said that, you know, when they realized that some of their own evangelical leaders had begun to question this, that that got them looking at annihilationism as a possible, uh-huh. um, as a possible uh, alternative. But once they started looking into annihilationism, they all started. They also started running across evangelicals who were arguing in a very evangelical way for an evangelical universal restoration, uh-huh. and not using scripture in a literal way, being very uh, cautious and upholding the absolute inspiration of scripture, but just saying that they thought they could see that the Greek in its original context allowed for. Uh, different understandings of words that get translated eternal or torment, oh, uh-huh. yeah. and that um, and that they also found that early church fathers had seen this, and that their traditions had kind of skipped over the early church fathers. So when they discovered early church fathers who were had been 
writing and thinking in the Greek of the New Testament, seeing these possibilities. And then they kind of get the freedom then to step away from eternal conscious torment and look at other alternatives. And they find that their peers are thinking about annihilationism. And some of their peers are even thinking about universal restoration. And these aren't people at Princeton Theological Seminary. These are, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. these are true blue evangelical, hardcore evangelicals that are starting to think about the possibility of a universal restoration. In some ways, it kind of resolves the the evangelical tension in that one one side of evangelicalism wants to affirm that salvation is by grace alone, uh, but it doesn't go to all. And the other side wants to affirm that grace goes to all, but it doesn't save alone. And so then yeah. that they can find their way then to a, a, a theology of a universal restoration without having to jettison a high view of scripture or a high Christology or any of that. They can sort of retain all of those things Mm-hmm. But um, but get get away from the eternal conscious torment viewpoint. Yeah, that's a really interesting development. But I I think if you were to do a sort of history of this, you could find all these moves being made by conservative Anglicans already in the 19th century. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just that it's happening 100 years later uh, in, in different circles. Yeah, and they can uh, or they I know. Uh, one one man uh, went to an evangelical seminary, is concerned um, about eternal conscious torment, and he came across a book by uh, Edwin Beecher on uh-huh. the uh, the you know the origin of the doctrine of eternal punishment. And you know this book was written in the eighteen hundreds. Uh-huh. This guy was the son of Lyman Beecher and the brother you know of um, Harry Lord. Beecher Stowe, wrote yeah. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so you know you can. They can find people that not only, not just in the early church, but also in the 1800s that were already in uh, very articulate scholarly kinds mm-hmm. of ways rethinking these issues. Yep, it's been it's been there for a while. You're absolutely right. Um, well, when you get into analyzing various scripture, scriptural passages, and, and this is this is sort of when now we're asking you to put your real New Testament. Um, abilities, language abilities, uh, not you're, you're really good at generalizing, but as a new Testament scholar, you also have to do now that the very, yeah. that very meticulous kind of language work. And, um, one of the things that I ran into is, um, the Greek word aeon just becomes absolutely central in this discussion. And how mm-hmm. do we interpret aeon? Often it gets interpreted eternal, uh, in a way sort of meaning unending, but then it has other nuances of meaning. There's a Hebrew word olam that's in the background of that. So mm-hmm. could you just kind of run us through that discussion? Well, so what you're looking at are are two phrases. One is the Hebrew adolam, which, you know, literally unto the world, something something like that. Or it, it comes out unto the, uh, the ages or unto the end of the age. And then that gets translated into Greek as Ace ton Iona. And the interesting thing about those is that you're right, they get translated forever, let's say in the King James Bible and many other Bibles. But if you just look at them in the Greek and Hebrew, that isn't what this phrase means. It just doesn't. So you can prove this because. Um, a number of times you'll see this phrase followed by the word until, right? So the book it's of, eternal until. Yeah. So the book of <laughs> Jubilee says that the giants 
will be bound under earth, ad olam, right, until the great day of judgment, and then they, you know, they'll be judged, right? Or First uh, Maccabees says that Simon Maccabee, he will be the leader of the people forever, eston Iona, until a prophet shall come, and so on. So if you can find, which you can, you can find a bunch of these texts where the, the phrase um, is clearly bounded, then you know that it doesn't mean strict infinity. Now, there are also other texts where it just obviously can't mean that. Uh, there's one text, I think it's Leviticus, where you you put uh, uh, some wooden object in the ear of a slave, and he is yours, Adolam. Well, okay. So even Augustine, uh, when he's talking about this in the city of God, he says, yes, I know. Look at all these places where the expression doesn't mean eternal, right? He says, you got me there grammatically. Yeah, it doesn't. But then he goes on, he says, but, you know, the saints have to live forever and we have eternal life. And so this has to be balanced by punishment, which must also be eternal. Anyway, it's an argument from theological symmetry that uh, he ultimately falls back on. It is not um, an argument on the basis of the meaning of words or, you know, the grammar. And the truth is, this is a real problem. I don't know of any adequate English equivalents. I just don't know. What, what, what these expressions seem to mean is a prolonged indefinite period of time. That's it. A prolonged indefinite period of time. Uh, it, that can be the life of a person. Uh, there's one text. Which text is it? It's amazing. It says, it's talking about the the messianic age. And it says they will all live forever until they die at 800. Right? <laughs> until they die at 800. So it means a prolonged period of time. That's all. It does not mean uh, strict eternity. And, and the other thing here is that you have, which I argue in this book, you have this weird notion that the biblical texts are somehow just like mathematical texts or they're the product of philosophers who uh, are carefully studying each word and giving it a precise meaning. But if you look at the statements about hell in the New Testament, mostly they're in, maybe exclusively, they're in moral exhortations, right? And this is just not where you look for philosophically strict language. Um, in the book, I, I say that uh, I think it's just kind of like someone saying that speaker went on forever. You know, well, you don't study that phrase. Well, what does he mean by forever? Is it strict? You know, it's that's ridiculous. It's just a way of speaking. So mm -hmm. I think myself that these New Testament um, sentences uh, about hell function as warnings and they're serious. I think they should be taken seriously. Uh, I'm not what you might call a uh, antinomian universalist. All right. Anything goes. Any, anything goes. No, I don't. I don't. I cannot believe that when, you know, pick some saint, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, when she died, exactly the same thing happened to her that happened to Joseph Stalin. If that's the case, then God has no 
moral compass. I don't believe that. Uh, there must be repercussions beyond this life for things we have done. Well, just at the end of the judgment passage in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, the sheep go into Aeonian Zoe and the goats uh-huh. go into Aeonian Colossus. So that Aeonian also, that um, Jesus talks that, that Aeonian life is to know the Father. So uh-huh. it's also to know something of uh, something of the Father. And Colossus is different than the Greek word Timoria, which is more about retribution. So Colossus has this background. Some people argue, uh, William Barclay argued it had a background in in correction and horticulture, well, in horticulture, pruning. I think Plato mm-hmm. used it more in, as a corrective colazzo. So I've interpreted that, you know, that the, that the righteous go into um, to God's life and mm-hmm. the unrighteous go into God's correction. Uh-huh. Um, and each, each of those last as long as they last and accomplish what they accomplish. Well, so that makes moral sense to me, all right? That makes moral sense to me. And uh, I'm happy with that. Although, again, you have to be very careful here. I don't want to be dealing with texts as though they're mathematical objects that have, you know, precise um, definitions. There are some New Testament texts which use words that often mean destruction. You know, something has come to an end. It's over with. And Matthew can use that, but then he could use also, you know, the, the Iona stuff. So is he really being reflective here? Are these things really contradictory or is he operating on a different level, which is what I I think of? I think that um, he's not um, he's not sitting here saying, well, by destruction, do I really mean destruction? And is that eternal destruction? And um, he's just not asking these questions. It's just bad. It's just bad. You don't want that, whatever it is, right? <laughs> well, the, uh, which which it, is why you can use more than one image or word for it. Well, in the fifteenth chapter, in the fifteenth chapter of Luke, I remember when I discovered, you know, used to thinking the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. When I discovered that that word there is apolumai, which really connotes kind of a destruction. Yeah. But so, so there's this destruction, uh, but then once they're found, they're undestroyed. <laughs> and they're back again, and, uh-huh. and it feels almost like it feels like quantum. You know, I'm um, <laughs> I'm I'm destroyed. I'm not destroyed. Um, mm-hmm. That there in that there is kind of this Bible theme or almost a Bible trope where it almost seems like well, it's the end of the line mm-hmm. until it isn't. It's it's over until it isn't. You know. Yeah. Uh, and and there's always room. You know, one of the things. Um, the people forget is there's always room for repentance. So there are a couple of things that come to mind here. One is the book of Jonah, where Jonah says 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. You've had it. That's it. Right. That's absolute. It's absolute. There's no qualification. Maybe you'll. (laughs) There's no qualification. But it turns out, yeah, well, okay, it didn't happen. Or the one that I think is the most profound is that in the Gospels, Jesus says, if you deny me before others, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. There's no qualification. He's dead serious. But Peter does exactly this. Like that. He does Three exactly times. this, and he's okay. It's kind of like, well, I said that, and I really meant it, but okay. Welcome home. 
anyway, right? So, you know, if that works for, for Peter, why does, or if it works for Nineveh, why doesn't it work, you know, in other contexts? Maybe it does. Yeah, and I like that Jonah story because if, if I remember, you know, he, he doesn't just go down into the belly of the whale, but he's, he's in Hades, you oh know, yeah, he's there forever. Otto he's Lam there forever. He's he's yeah. there forever. Adolam, which is three days, doesn't make any sense. If it means forever, well, I can imagine that three days in the belly of a whale would seem like forever. Seem forever. That's right. <laughs> okay, now one of the issues which plays a big role in this discussion of hell is free will, and I appreciated your comment. Yet when human freedom, and this this sounds very, I, I, I hear Moltmann, forgive me, but I hear Moltmann in the background <laughs> okay. here. Uh, not that you're not your own independent thinker, but Moltmann said something very similar. Uh, but you wrote, yet when human freedom is front and center, God moves to the wings. In the modern myth, our names are on the marquee and our destiny is up to us. What we make of ourselves here determines what we are to become there. Should we, however, desire starring roles in, in, in such a Pelagian freedom. Uh, although not an old-fashioned Calvinist, I think it's obvious that all of us are broken creatures, that we're selfish and self-deluded, and that we constantly abuse our freedom, which is so often illusory. Because of this, I find little use for a deity which lets me decide my fate. I don't want to be my own god, nor do I want the supreme being to respect my alleged autonomy no matter what. So <laughs> say some more about that. Okay, so uh, uh, two things come to mind. So the the first thing is that, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, and I guess Paul stands as the premier example, but people often will talk about a conversion experience as though they were not the subject of the action. That is, some divine force, some grace, some spirit came and did something which they didn't prepare for, they didn't will, they didn't do. And I like that, and I I think that it's true in many cases, and I can't imagine that it's true in many cases and that these turn out to be 10% of the human race. It makes no sense to me, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. I, I take uh, it, this experience seriously. But here's the other thing. The older I get, the less freedom I think I have. And so I realize that I didn't pick my parents. I didn't pick my time. I didn't pick my place. I didn't pick my genes. And I really am, to large degree, the product of those things I did not pick, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't want my eternal fate to depend upon my parents and my genes and the time and place. I want it to depend on a God who can see and understand way more than I can. God's freedom means something. I don't know how much my freedom means. I, gosh, I don't know if this is really to the point, but I often look back at my life and think, wow, I wish I could do that again. Or I really thought this was true. (laughs) And now I know that it wasn't, or I was dogmatic about this choice and it was the wrong one. I just don't trust myself anymore. Why would I want to be my, my own God? And again, I didn't even make who I am 
I believe that we are somehow mysteriously free. I'm a modern person again. I believe in free will. But I also often recall that passage in Augustine's Confessions where he's looking at himself as a little boy and realizing, wow, he didn't choose any of this. He just showed up and look at all the things that happened to him that made him who he was, right? Mm -hmm. So grace uh, and the divinity have to understand who we are a million times better than, than, than we do. Why would we want any of us to make, <laughs> make decisions with eternal consequences? I, I don't want it. Well, let, let me take a stab at it in, in that, you know, I, I grew up in Texas and um, freedom, you know, uh, the ability to choose one's own, you know, it was, a, you know, we grew up in Texas, you learned that we were, we were an independent, we were on our, our own country at one point, you know, before we, so the Lone Star State, you know, uh, I said, my joke is that I grew up in Texas, but I'm recovering nicely. Um, but the idea that, um, that, that, you know, give me liberty or give me death, that, that, Mm -hmm. that to be free is, is as an American to be free, to, to choose our own destiny, to to chart our own course, even if that means that we are going off a cliff is still what we want to do. And we say, give me liberty, you know, or give me death, you know, we, we mean it. And so that if God is, is good, then God must give us good things and the greatest and best and most wonderful thing of all to give to another person is freedom, even the freedom ultimately to, to act against their own best interest, to walk into nothingness. And so how can God who is good then withhold the best thing of all, which is freedom. And and it doesn't freedom mean the ability to walk into oblivion if that's so, what we want to do. Yeah. So if you were to, so let's assume that the old hell is correct and there's an eternal conscious uh, torture chamber. Um, do the people in there, are they happy that they freely chose that? No, they regret it profoundly and they would like God to get them out. They don't look back and say, yeah, I'm glad I made that decision. I had my freedom. No, they they don't want their freedom. They want escape, right? Um, by the way, uh, I'm at a Presbyterian school, you know, historically Presbyterian school, and there are no traditional Calvinists here anywhere. And I think the old Calvinism with, um, you know, the tulip and uh, predestination and all of that, I think that it does fall upon hard times in part because of the modern ideology of freedom. We all want to be free. We don't want to be predestined. That's just terrible. And uh, you can read people 300 years ago, and they thought it was great that God chose them, selected them, elected them, and, you know, that they're not free to do this. It's interesting, again, how the culture can change how how things go. Calvinism is not a popular, uh, you know, the old-fashioned Calvinism, not popular now. And it's because of what you said. We're all Texans. <laughs> We're all Texans, right? Give me my freedom. I want to be well, who I am. Well, I was, uh, and and so for for um, until I was about fifty, uh, that that viewpoint actually sort of made me think that an annihilationist uh, construal might make sense, and you know, and that God could be good, and and everybody not finally be saved. Then I started running into the works of uh, uh, Thomas Talbot, David Bentley Hart, mm-hmm. 
in people who were analyzing um, the, the I, I learned the term libertarian free will, which uh -huh. was kind of a philosophical concept that meant that to be free mean that, that you're only free if you can always uh, logically do the opposite. Yep. Mm -hmm. And but David Bentley Hart, I think, and and Thomas Talbot both make the case that at the final eschatological horizon, if we are children of God, if we do have an orientation, if if you say God is our telos, once uh, once all of the all of the misunderstanding and the clouds and the 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 wrong opinions and everything has has been wiped away, and we are seeing perfectly clearly, and we know who we are, we know who God is, we know that it's 100% in our interest then to go into the direction of our fulfillment and 100 against our best interest to walk <laughs> away from it. Uh -huh. Well, then you are, you are at that point then the freest you've ever been. You are completely and totally free. So it's not that God has taken away your freedom, that, that it is that the truth has set you free. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was in that way that I was able to say, wait a second, when I am acting against my interest, I am, it might seem to me that I am free, but actually I am bound by a powerful delusion that is okay. just making me think that I'm acting in my own best interest. So really there's, I'm, I'm bound and I'm a slave to sin. Mm -hmm. And so it, once I'm no longer a slave to sin, once I am set free, like the garrison demoniac, then I will be in my right clothes and in my right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus. But that's a, that's future tense, right? Right now, all you can do is see through a glass darkly. Yeah. Can't, can't do any better than that. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just believing that it is not, it is not a, um, God is not ultimately taking away my freedom. The, oh, the, I the see. ultimate yeah. purpose of God is not to take away my freedom, but to help to create a good free will within me. And uh, uh -huh. so, and then I was really encouraged about that Origen uh, had that same idea that God could progressively through the through the aeons um, that gradually, uh, not 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 in a coercive way, but in a in yeah. a way that uh -huh. people be, would, gradually would come to more and more of a realization of the truth of their situation that they that God mm -hmm. could bring everybody home and preserve their free will. Yeah. So I hope I hope for that also. Uh, well, okay. Toward the uh, end of your section on hell, you include a beautiful quote from St. Isaac of Nineveh. And since you quoted St. Isaac, I also, well, I, I got interested immediately. Um, uh -huh. He was very confident about the power of God to save. For according to St. Isaac, uh, just as a grain of sand cannot counterbalance a great quantity of gold, so in compassion God's use of justice cannot counterbalance his mercy. As a handful of sand thrown into the great sea, so are the sins of all flesh in comparison with the mind of God. Why did you yeah. include that quote? Well, first of all, <laughs> I think it's beautiful. And uh, I remember when I read maybe 20 years ago, the um, passage that that's from or the discourse that it's from. And I remember thinking, this is not a modern person. This is some guy writing 12, 1300 years ago. And it sounds very, very modern and very, very up to date. Um, Isaac is just a beautiful person. So I think that, uh, well, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because Christianity has produced some wonderful people. And he, for me, 
He is one of them. He's just one of the, the great people. When you read him, you're reading somebody who just oozes empathy. He oozes sympathy. He oozes understanding. He oozes love. He's just a really uh, remarkable character. But maybe, maybe that 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 passage uh, resonates with me in part because um, my wife and I uh, have a retirement cabin mid-coast Maine, and there's a lighthouse not far away, and I've spent a lot of time at that lighthouse sitting on the rock staring at the ocean over the last 30 years, and um, the ocean is big. It's really big. <laughs> it's really big. And me, when I'm versing, you know, me against the ocean, I'm just nothing. I really am nothing compared to this gigantic power and force, which does its own thing and goes its own way. And uh, sitting there, I often think that in some ways God is like this, although I hope God is more compassionate than the ocean, which sometimes seems indifferent. But just in terms of the size, how big this is, and God is even bigger than this. And if I am small compared to the ocean, my sins compared to God just have to be nothing. So uh, I feel it when I'm sitting there for some reason. I, I, I wish I were a poet and I could put it into words, but somehow feeling small before the ocean uh, reinforces what, what uh, Isaac has to say there. I, I think that one of the issues that I have is uh, theodicy, the, the, the tremendous evil um, and suffering of the world and just mm -hmm. how how overwhelmingly powerful evil seems sometimes and so the idea of thinking that well yes in this limited scope in this run of the aeons it it is it is being allowed to have some sway but in the big picture uh it's just a handful of sand yeah thrown right. into the ocean of of god's uh, victorious love yeah, I, I agree. And isn't, isn't that a wonderful comparison? The the differentiation in size um, just gets the point of cross. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. Now, with regard to St. Isaac's sentiment that all the sins of the world are for God, but a handful of sand thrown into the sea, you add, many Christians would, of course, dispute this. They imagine that God's left half-brain is love and God's right half-brain is justice. In the words of John Gerstner, God is love, but he is more than love and other than love, unquote. Such a proposal deeply disturbs me because I'm <laughs> of the same mind as Berdyaev. Berdyaev. I can conceive of no more powerful and irrefutable argument in favor of atheism than the eternal torments of hell. If hell is eternal, then I am an atheist. So I was wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit. Oh my goodness! Well, um, I I don't know how to unpack that except to say that um, it's true. So um, I think it's easy, maybe sometimes, for people who have been successful, or people who are well to do, or people who have had their dreams realized, to think maybe I don't need anything more than this. But uh, the world is full of people who have been treated unjustly, who have had miserable lives, who have never had their dreams realized. And uh, 
people who have suffered? Um, look, let's say little Susie is six years old and let's say she is kidnapped and then she is raped and then she is strangled and then she's buried and the perpetrator gets away with it and the body's dug up five years later and uh, her parents learn what happened. And that's the end of the story. God doesn't win in that story. And I'm an atheist. If that real, And by the way, that story is not an uncommon story. It has a million variations, right? People who live in incredible pain, who have been mistreated, uh, people who've spent their whole lives as slaves, for example. Uh, it just goes on and on. The, the problem of evil is everywhere, and it's gigantic, and it is, it is God's problem to solve. And I can't see that it's been solved in this world uh, at all. Actually, I think that's what the kingdom of God must be. The kingdom of God ultimately must be uh, God undoing all of this. And you look at it all and you say, How, you can't undo the Holocaust. You can't undo this suffering. You can't justify it. You can't make up for it. I think God proving to be God is doing exactly those things that are impossible and can't be done. And so that's what I, that's what I look forward to. In your concluding remarks on hell, you write, perhaps then it would be incautious to endorse without reservation Isaac and his fellow Universalists, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Hans Dank, Jane Lee, J.A. Bengal, Thomas Erkstein, George MacDonald, Sergius Bulgakov, Joxy Lull, uh, John Hick, Marilyn McCord Adams. I nonetheless ardently hope that they're right, and I don't understand anyone who feels differently. Even if, as the New Testament more than suggests, God allows some of us to carry our personal hells into the next life, even if there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, why should that go on forever? So could you say a little more about that passage? Okay, well, so the, the first thing, uh, I'd like to reiterate what I said earlier. I do um, want to underline human responsibility, and I don't think people can live reprobate lives and do horrible, evil things and simply die and, and get away with it. Now, how they are repaired, what that looks like, how it works, whether there's some analog to purgatory, I don't know, but I, that's the first thing. Uh, so I, as I said earlier, I'm not an easy universalist, all right? I don't think we just die and everybody's the same. That makes no sense. There's no moral rhyme or, or reason to the universe if, if that happens. Secondly, I also at least believe in hellish experiences. So we've talked about near-death experiences a, a little bit here today. You probably know that while 90, 95% of, uh, of these experiences are positive, there's a small percentage of them that are miserable. And some of them, when the people tell their stories, really sound like the, you know, the old-fashioned place of horror or the, the, the torture chamber that we'd like to get rid of. So I do know that people, at least psychologically, have hellish experience when they hellish experiences sometimes when they see to be seem to be on the the edge of, of life and I don't want to deny those experiences um, uh, they are they are real right so I need to keep those those two things in mind but the notion that hell goes on forever makes no sense to me at all first of all I don't think anybody understands 
infinity. I don't think any of us understands forever. Um, I, I've seen mathematicians prove to me, I don't even understand what large numbers are, you know, not fi- infinite numbers, but just w- when they talk about um, finite numbers, they can be so big that it, that it makes no sense. Uh, e- eternity doesn't make sense. And, and then the, the other thing here is that there is no theological or philosophical justification for thinking that for the finite sins we have committed during our short lives here, we will be punished strictly eternally for, for them. That is infinite punishment for finite sins. Now, you know that the traditional way to get around this, you find it in Aquinas, for example, is to say, well, God is infinite, so any sin against God is infinite. Therefore, it deserves an infinite punishment. But those are just words. It makes no sense. So if you tell a lie, well, a lie is a sin against God. It doesn't deserve uh, eternal punishment. That's just insane. So this is a, a traditional argument. You know, it's a sin against God. God is infinite, so it must be inf- infinitely punished. It just makes no sense to me. It doesn't calculate. It doesn't compute. I don't get it at all. So I'm not on board. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that 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 you're talking about like sometimes that doctrines come out of experiences, uh-huh. and and I do want to. I, I've read um, Encountering Mystery, and so mm-hmm. I would like to do another interview with you on that book sure. because I really think it's an extension of this conversation, and there is some overlap between the yeah, books. The near death experience. Uh-huh. It seems like you know the near death experience section of Night Comes in, overlaps with the near death section of encountering mystery uh-huh. but and and also the part where doctrine grows out of experience you know so yes. paul doesn't just write about grace he had this experience where something came on him and took him somewhere uh yeah. well anyway i was just going to say so i think we've both had experiences of divine encounter where you have a the mysterious other comes and presents mm-hmm. itself not in theological form but has a presence a presence of goodness beyond understanding. But mm-hmm. I've also, at times throughout my life, sometimes this is in a dream, it's mostly been in dream, I guess in dream states, but had the sense of an overwhelming presence of evil. Mm-hmm. And it, in, it, in, in, in the dream state, at least, it's often connected with paralysis. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. I used to get really scared when that would happen. And then I learned that, oh, if I'm having a dream and that happens, that all I need to do is relax and just say Jesus over and over again, <laughs> uh-huh. and it'll go and it'll go away. Mm-hmm. And then in encountering mystery, you talk that you've that you've had those experiences, and that actually we're, that a lot of people have had those oh. kinds of experiences. So I don't want to get into the okay. into the next yep. interview too much, but it, it 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 heaven and hell as experiences come to us mystically in this life, and so they resonate with all of us in a certain way. And I think what you're trying to do is say, yes, there is a truth to them. Give full weight to the heavenly experience and also understand that the hellish experience is real and it awaits us to the degree that is necessary, but don't let it, it ultimately can't win. It's not ultimately in charge. So, so that that opens up a lot of subjects. I'll just say this. Um, I, 
people do run into evil presences or evil spirits, or sometimes they'll say Satan or the devil or so on. And I do not ever recall anyone encountering evil and saying, that's what reality is all about. But it's very common with people who have experiences of transcendent love to think, oh, that's what it's all about, or that's ultimate reality. And so even though we have these two experiences, I don't think they're mirror images of one another. I think we actually experience one as more fundamental than the other, which is really interesting. Yeah, and I think you're you're a pretty unique scholar from my point of view in the way that you're able to do sort of the serious New Testament work, but you're also able to incorporate uh, the numinous, the ineffable experiences that we have. Um, and you're to me, you're an interesting meld of those two things, which is what I want to get into in in our next interview. Okay, but well, I would like okay. to end this one with the okay. curious with the curious thing. This is my last thing. Okay, so we all want to, we, nobody wants to go to hell, but here's the little, here, I'll say, here's the dirty secret about heaven. Okay. We're a little nervous that heaven might ultimately drive us crazy. We're, I mean, because I've heard people say, yeah, I want to go to heaven, but really, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to play the harps forever. I mean, at some point, won't, won't that seem in itself, even playing the harp, won't, won't that seem tedious? <laughs> Be, you know, we'll get, won't we just all finally go crazy? Yeah. Okay. So I think there's several things to say to that. First of all, the harp playing is still there in the public imagination. Isn't that terrible? Because it does sound boring. Uh, Maybe it comes from cartoons we saw as children, you know, where people would be on clouds playing harps. But the Christian imagination ought to be able to do something way better than that, right? That's, it's really sad that, you know, that's that's still still out there. But one way I think about this is to to say that Nietzsche was wrong. So Nietzsche had this notion of the eternal return. And he thought that if everything were strictly uh, infinite, then everything would have to repeat. But that's mathematically false because there are two different sorts of infinite numbers. One is repeating and one is not. So if you have the number uh, 1212121212 dot 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 out for infinity, that's a repeating sequence, right? And it's infinite. But pi, the number pi, does not repeat. It is an infinite sequence. And according to the experts, the mathematicians, it does not repeat. It's 3.14549, whatever it is, right? Seven something, something, something. Yeah, okay, okay, whatever it is. They say it doesn't re- repeat. So there is no pattern. And that's really interesting. You can have a strict infinity that doesn't have repetition. So the first thing to say is Nietzsche is just wrong about that mathematically. The second thing to say about it is that we also theologically have this notion of time and eternity, timelessness. And I've never known what to make of this. So I remember once reading a a book on time that was written by a philosopher. And then once I read a book on time by a physicist. And when I had read those two books, I just said, I don't understand this. I'm not going to think about time anymore. But you know, in our tradition, uh, some people think that our, our future is to escape time and to 
to leave uh, our, our time boundedness behind. Others think, no, we're, we're eternally in time. I don't know what the answer to that is, but if we escape time, I'm gathering that that escapes boredom somehow, right? Because that's not, that's not repetition. Uh, our boredom, all, boredom always has to do with time. So uh, that's the second thing. Maybe, maybe time is not uh, our eternal state. Maybe something else is. But the other thing is that I've been greatly influenced by Gregory of Nyssa, who is another one of uh, the greats in my view. So yes. if Nineveh and, and Gregory are two of my favorite uh, people. But Gregory has this notion that God is infinite and that you make progress towards God or you move into God and God being strictly infinite can never be exhausted. So you're always moving upwards. You're always moving in. You're always moving towards, but there is no end because it's strictly infinite, right? And and I think the Greek in the Greek word for that is epictasis, right? Yeah. Well, it, that's among the other things, yeah, that the word can mean. So, um, a stretching out, epictasis is yeah, like a stretching uh-huh. out, mm-hmm. or or leaving out, you know, leaving yourself. But the the point is that you are moving uh, on an infinite uh, path or within an infinite space, and God is not boring, and God is infinite. So it means an infinity of exploration and discovery and learning and improving and assimilating to God and so on. So that doesn't sound at all boring to me. It actually sounds rather exciting. Now, I will say that when I fantasize about heaven, I'd still like to take a nap once in a while. I really enjoy (laughs) sleeping. I like naps. My wife's hoping that whatever lies on the other side, you know, she gets to she gets to sleep for a few months or maybe even a few years before it's on to the next. (laughs) I don't know, but uh, but Gregory uh, for me is a very inspiring uh, and inspired uh, theologian, and and I like his 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 view of an an eternal progress. Well, um, origin is interesting to me on this week. We were talking about that Greek word aeon. And as I understand origin, he understood that God was the God of the aeons, so that God created the aeons for mm-hmm. a purpose. And that once the aeons had completed their purpose, then God would be all in all and nobody would be in an aeon anymore because we would all be in God, which is a different way of thinking about time. Yeah, it's a different like time is a kind of time is, a, you know, we're used to thinking of time as this linear thing and that somehow God is on this linear thing with us. And that to me, this kind of works into the idea that God is the God of the aeons, then the aeons are in, in a sense simultaneously present to God. So that that means to me that protology is eschatology <laughs> and uh-huh. that there is a kind of, there is a kind of unity to all things. Um, but like, um, Somebody said uh, one time, time is useful because it keeps everything from happening at once. So there is yes, a uh-huh. there is a helpful. So if the creation is to mature, if it is to grow, then it, it does seem that the aeons do make sense. But if the aeons have or that there is an ultimate telos, that they would have an end that would be beyond the aeons as well. Um, so I I love that vision and I love origin. But the, the question for it has always been, and Origen uh, nods at this once in a while, 
you know, he, he if the end that we're moving towards is at the beginning, how did we get to the present? We must have somehow <laughs> fallen out of this perfect thing. And then can that ever happen again, right? What the heck happened, happened there? But uh uh, sorry to end on the downer there, but uh... well, no, no. You said you said that if if there was one thing that you were looking forward to in eternity or beyond this world, that getting to talk with certain people would oh. be uh, would be one of the things that you would enjoy. And I think that Origin was on the list of the people that you would like to oh, sure. visit visit with. And I would like to get on that on that conversation too. <laughs> well, there are tons of people I would like to talk to. Actually. Uh, I, I have uh, two things that I would like to do. One is I think I think I would like to learn everybody's story. So infinity is a long time. I think I would yeah. like to know the story of every human being who ever lived. And the other thing is that I would like to have the leisure time to read every single book that has ever been written, apart from the ones that aren't worth reading. So I don't believe in burning books, but God could burn the bad ones, right? So probably some books <laughs> don't need to be read. But once they're burned, then I, I, I'd I, be thrilled to read every single book and to read them more than once and to come to an understanding. And that's going to take a long time. That's going to take a yeah. long, long time. And then you know, that's just one thing, reading books. Well, I, one of the things that I that I, that I enjoy about uh, what I'm doing is I, I heard somebody say one time that the, the, the two things that make life wonderful are love and learning. And so mm-hmm. it seems to me that you are experiencing these things, that, that you're, I could say you're a scholar of advanced age, but it doesn't seem to me that you're bored with life, that you're through thinking, that you're, there's so many things that, you know... I, um, that there's still to do, and then there's an eternity to do to do even more, more. and to not ever get bored. So I don't think that's ending on a down. Let's say okay, that's not ending uh, on a down note. Okay. No, <laughs> I I don't know anything. That's why, you know, I'm reading books every day and learning every single day. Learning, golly, I know nothing. Nobody knows anything. We all know just a tiny, tiny <laughs> bit. And if and we're built to learn, right? It's wonderful to learn about things. So, obviously, I will be learning till the day I die, unless you know I, ha- I have mental issues and can't do it. But no, that's exciting. Well, well, I've really enjoyed uh, our conversation. I look forward to our next one. Okay, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.